All right. So many of you who know me probably know that I'm in a pretty hectic transitional season in my life, right? I'm going to be married in about a month, and I'm also in the process of moving out of my parents' house to a new house, right? All that to say, in about a month, I'll be officially adulting. So one reality that's really punched me in the face in the last few months is how expensive life is in Jakarta, right? Especially now, I have so many expenses that I never had to worry about before suddenly on my shoulders. Mortgage, taxes, electricity, gasoline, future kids' education. Well, that's a lot of bills. And it's stressing me out just thinking about it right now. And on the one hand, right, this anxiety does come from the fact that I don't have any concrete, absolute, worldly assurances that there will be always be enough. I might have enough to get by now, but what if some crisis happens? Like, you know, pandemic or the economy crashing or somehow I lose my ability to work. All of these apocalyptic scenarios that are in the back of my mind, which could make me unable to take care of myself and who I care about as much as I feel like I should. And I really don't want that to happen and be in a position to be asking for help. I don't think my ego can handle that. Yet, on the other hand, part of me knows that this is kind of an irrational anxiety. Because I have the incredible privilege of not living paycheck to paycheck, and I have a financial portfolio that has been set up to have some resilience to most unforeseen disruptions to my income. So aside from some catastrophe, in all likelihood, the only reason why I'll go hungry is if I'm on a diet or something, you know. And of course, right, this is a privilege that I could be more grateful to God for. Most of the world don't enjoy such privileges. And, by the way, I am also a Christian, a Calvinist even, who genuinely believes that there is a sovereign God in control of every single thing that happens, who in His grace is working behind all things for my good. And that God has told us explicitly in His Word not to be anxious about the future, because as He feeds the birds of the air and as He clothes the flowers of the fields, so He will take care of us, because we are much more precious to Him than these. Therefore, although I have all of the material and even theological reasons to feel secure about my finances, somehow I'm still anxious. I still have this nagging feeling that I don't have enough right now, which is part and parcel with this restlessness that telling me I should be working even harder to get more for myself. So what I'm saying is that there is this disparity, there is this gap between what I believe in and how I actually feel about my security. And I expect that many of us experience and share this anxiety or gap, right? And helpfully though, the Bible actually gives us a practical way we can bridge this gap and actually enjoy the feeling that we truly have enough. Even though we might not have as much as we probably would like currently. But it is a way that's gonna seem counterintuitive and even paradoxical to us. Because God teaches us that the way we can truly rest in the security that there is enough is the way of generosity. Okay, how does that work? Our text today 
will explain. So let's read it to see what God has to teach us from it, from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 15, right? This is the Word of God. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago not only started to do this work, but also to desire it. So now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So, a bit of background on this passage comes from the letter of 2 Corinthians, though it's not actually Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We know of at least two letters that Paul wrote before this one to the Corinthians that didn't make it in our Bibles. But in the end of the other letter that we do have, 1 Corinthians, we saw Paul, at the end of it, ask this church to set aside some money for the church in Jerusalem. Right? There had been a famine in Jerusalem, and the churches in there were in need. So Paul started this international fundraising campaign to raise support for these churches that he had relationships with, right? If you guys were here for our series in the book of Acts, remember how a month ago, I think, we studied how uh, Paul was in Jerusalem and all this stuff happened to him? He was in Jerusalem in the first place to deliver these alms that he raised through this campaign. However, apparently, the Corinthians forgot to do this at first. So what we read is part of Paul's pastoral nudge for them to seize the opportunity to be generous. Because as we saw in verse 6, Paul was about to send Titus, his companion, to collect the funds that they have raised, right? So to encourage them to give, Paul reminded them of at least three things for why generosity is the crucial part of Christianity, right? Our three points. One, Material abundance is not a necessary condition for generosity. Two, but the gospel makes generosity necessary. And three, because generosity is necessary to free us to enjoy 
true abundance. All right, you don't have to get it all down right now. We're going to get back to it. And we're talking about a pretty sensitive topic today, right? The topic of money. So may the Lord generously pour out His Spirit upon us today that we may appreciate the riches of His wisdom by softening our hearts and giving us ears to hear what He wants to say to us. Okay? So let's get into it. Point one. Material abundance is not a necessary condition for generosity. So the first thing Paul pointed out to, in order to encourage the Corinthian church to be generous was actually the radical generosity of another congregation. We see that in the, verse, the first five verses of our text, that there were these churches in Macedonia who in verse 1, Paul says, has been given the grace of God. Now, in Greek, this word grace is this word charis, right? Which also actually literally means gift. And the grace of God that he's talking about here is, of course, the generous gift of salvation that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. So these guys were Christians, and Paul wanted to share to the Corinthians what these Christians were capable of by God's grace. So, in verse 2 then, right, Paul tells them that they themselves, the Macedonians, were going through a period of persecution and poverty, a severe test of affliction, he says. The gift God gave them allowed them to have this abundance of joy that overflows in the midst of their poverty such that they were also able to give beyond their means in verse 3, which was quite surprising. Verse 5 even tells us that Paul himself didn't expect this. Like he knew that they didn't have much, so he wasn't even going to ask them to give. But they did. And in fact, in verse 4, Paul highlights that they did not do this reluctantly or under pressure, but they begged Paul for what they considered a gift. If you look at verse 4, the word translated there as favor is the same word, charis, in verse 1. Meaning that the Macedonian church saw that this opportunity to participate in the work of relieving their brothers and sisters in Christ is a gift to them. It was their honor to the point that they would go out of their way and give away what was probably an uncomfortable amount financially for them. So it's almost like the Macedonians thought of it like splurging, right? Like not on some overpriced steak or vacation like I would, but so that they could enjoy the delight of sharing some of their joy to their brothers and sisters who are in need. In other words, the Macedonians considered themselves already having been blessed. Because verse 5 tells us that they have given themselves first over to the Lord, which means they have placed their trust, their hopes, and their well-being in Him. Thus, they experienced this heart renewal, which enabled them to live out truly the teaching of our Lord, whose life, whose own life and teachings embodied the philosophy that it is truly better to give than to receive. Consequently, they didn't see their own financial limitations as something that prevented them from being generous. You see, how they thought about their wealth has changed so much that it made the cause of serving their brothers and sisters one they would happily invest whatever they can into. Kind of like the story in the Gospels, right, of when his disciples were observing people in the temple putting money in the offering box, where on the one hand there were these rich people putting their bags of money in, but 
there was also this poor widow who only put in her two copper coins. And Jesus said that the widow was actually the one who gave more. Because the rich gave out of their abundance, but the widow, out of her poverty, gave everything she had to live on. You see, Jesus isn't saying that the widow's offering is better because it is a larger percentage of the income, right? But rather, it's not about the amount, but the mindset behind the giving. Because for the rich there, generosity was an afterthought. Right? Something that they would do if they had something left over. But for the widow, generosity was the priority. Something that she would sacrificially give her entire living into. She was probably saving up just so that she can give these two copper coins. So it's our mentality behind our wealth, behind our giving, that God truly appreciates. And isn't this radically different about how the world thinks about generosity? Most of us probably had the mindset that we can only be generous when we have a lot. Something that the rich and those who have their own needs taken care of can think about. Like, once my business is successful, if I hit this jackpot, after all my kids are educated and married, then I can give some away then I'll be able to give more and do more. You know, while there's some truth in that, we can more comfortably give when we're set up ourselves, and, you know, the more we have, the more impactful our giving can be. But somehow, I don't think that most of us have this perspective because we're just itching to give one day, and we really cannot just now. But rather, I think it's because we have this perspective of insecurity that is produced because our culture and our world presses upon us a scarcity mindset, that the world is cruel and unpredictable. It is a place where we only ever have limited amounts of resources and a limited amount of time, and everybody is hustling to take care of themselves because there might not be enough for everyone. It's a dog-eat-dog world, as the old adage says. So we need to take care of ourselves and take matters into our own hands, take care of ourselves first. And we go into this self-preservation mode. But friends, the danger of this mindset is that not only it can make us forget about being generous, but it is this mindset that leads us to be constantly dissatisfied with what we have and envy what other people have. It is this mentality that would make us justify disadvantaging other people so that we would be successful and make us willing to sacrifice the time and attention we pay to our closest relationships, right? like our spouses or children or families, even to our own mental health, because we've been deceived into thinking that accumulating wealth is more important and more beneficial than even these. In other words, living under a scarcity mindset actually creates and perpetuates the environments where things are scarce. And this mentality, friends, is really hard to be freed from. Because competition, as you know, and cost of living only ever goes up as time passes. 
and the threat of economic instability or collapse seems to be always just around the corner. And we don't have the assurance that we can always be productive. And it's really hard not to be all FOMO and envious when we see other people, especially in our communities, having the financial freedom we don't enjoy and experiencing things we can only dream of. So as with the Macedonians, friends, the only way we can be free from that is if we have the reality that we already have been given a gift by God sink deeply into our hearts to the point where we can give ourselves to the Lord and live in the assurance that He is truly trustworthy, such that we don't have to feel like we don't have this urge to hold on tightly to what we have, but become someone who is more willing to share their wealth and resources to others. And how we do that is by meditating deeply in God's greatest gesture of generosity until our scarcity mindset becomes a mindset of abundance. Or as the hymn we just sang said, until we cherish that old rugged cross so much that one day our trophies we gladly lay down. Which is point two. But the gospel makes generosity necessary. Now, let me draw your attention to verse 7. After presenting them with the example of the excellence of the Macedonians and giving them the opportunity to do the same, Paul starts to explain to the Corinthians why they should take this opportunity. And he first uh, starts by encouraging for the great things they do excel at, right? Faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, right? He's saying, you guys are great at that. If they were a modern church, he would be like, Man, you guys are awesome Christians. You have some really educated theologians. You guys preach great sermons. You're really passionate about following Jesus, right? And this is not gombal, right? Paul's not just buttering them up. Because remember, right, he knows these guys. He's visited many times and even spent a year and a half with them at one point. So Paul can get straight to the point here. Because what Paul wants to say, in effect, is that while they're great at these things, and they're great things, this area of generosity is a place that is quite important for them to grow as well. That's why in verse 8, Paul says that this is not a command, right? God isn't forcing them to do this. It wouldn't be a sin if they didn't give. They would still be Christians, they'll still be saved, and we'll still see them in heaven. But through pointing out what the Macedonians did, Paul wants them to prove that their love is genuine. He's saying to the Christians, I know you guys received the same gift from God as the Macedonians did. So I would like for you, I would love for you to show that the love of God is affecting you in the same way and you are just as capable of being generous as they are. So in other words, to Paul, this is not a matter of justification, but sanctification. Not whether they're going to go to heaven, but their growth in holiness. And it is an indispensable and necessary area of growth, according to Paul. And why is explained in verse 9, right? This is really the core of Paul's message here. It says, you know the gift, that word, charis again, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul is doing here is describing the gospel story 
in economic or financial terms. Jesus gave up his glorious honor and wealth that he had with the Father before he became flesh. He had everything he needed, everything you could want. He had all the status, all the security, all the power, everything. But he saw that there was something worth giving all that up for. Us. This is the same idea of what Paul also wrote in Philippians 2, that also Jesus was in the form of God. He did not count the quality with God a thing to be grasped, something that he needs to be insecure about, something that he needs to be protective of and used for his own advantage. But rather, Jesus willingly emptied himself to come down and die like a poor servant so that other people, we who are once poor and slaves to sin, and hopelessly so, can be exalted and become abundantly wealthy through the riches of God's grace. What Paul is saying here, friends, is that the gospel story is at heart a story of God's radical generosity. Jesus saw his abundance as an opportunity to be generous. Therefore, to be a Christian is to have this story become our story following Jesus in this way of self-sacrificial generosity. And if you guys have been at TCC for a while, right, you know that we're not going all prosperity gospel. We're not talking about material riches here that Christ is giving us through His sacrifice. But it is this much more meaningful spiritual riches. It is this security from our new relationship of trust with God, the Creator of heaven and earth, as our Father who takes care of us at all times. And He has exalted us, exalted our status to be children, being given the power to overcome the sin and death that once oppressed us. Therefore, we should not have this scarcity of mindset, but one of abundance, knowing that we surely will be given much more than enough much more than we actually deserve. So if in Christ we can have this mindset of abundance, it is part and parcel with an ethic of generosity. Because we don't need to think of our earthly wealth and status as a thing to be grasped. And we can begin to empty ourselves for the sake of others so that they can see Jesus through us and experience the abundance that we've been given by our Heavenly Father. This, friends, is the ethic of the cruciform life. As such, in verse 10 and 11, Paul tells us that participating in these acts of generosity actually benefits them. He's saying that the fact that the Corinthian church has desired to do it shows Paul that they're beginning to be renewed by the gospel and beginning to have this ethic of generosity. So, they should follow through with this desire so that they can demonstrate their love and experience a little bit of what it's like to be like Jesus. Because the fact is, if we continue on self-preservation mode and persist to hoard everything for ourselves, we're always going to feel like we're lacking. We're always like, we're going to feel like we have to shoulder everything on ourselves and we'll miss out on the gift of giving that Jesus wants to give us. 
And it is only when we embody this ethic of generosity can we begin to experience the mindset of abundance that Jesus himself lived and he wants us to have. So uh, a few months ago, I went to Brazil, right? And over there, they lived like COVID didn't exist, right? There were no masks and like everyone was just living and partying like normal. But in Indonesia, I came from a place where it's much more cautious about COVID. So I contextualized and I went to Brazil not wearing masks. At first, I was freaking out because I was like feeling like I was in a hazmat zone, right? But eventually, I was cool about it. I didn't feel like COVID was a threat. So because I acted like COVID wasn't a threat, I didn't feel threatened by it, right? I'm not talking about whether or not you guys uh, should wear masks or not. But basically, what I'm saying is that if we don't act like our circumstances have changed, we won't feel like our circumstances has actually been changed, even though it actually has. And I think this applies to the change of being poor in sin and rich in Christ that has supposedly happened to us. And the function of generosity is to allow us to feel this change, to feel this blessedness of being like Christ and rich in Christ that we're growing into now. Okay, now I know that maybe many of us are thinking, okay, this sounds good, but it's just not realistic. It might make us feel actually a bit more uncomfortable because it feels like another bill we got to pay when we already have so many. And Paul certainly understands this. Paul comforts them and explains why this is actually realistic and proper in the kingdom of God. So point three, because generosity is necessary to free us to enjoy true abundance. Okay, so in verse 12 to 13, Paul tries to calm some of the anxiety about the generosity he was asking them to express. He says in verse 13, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, right? He's saying like, guys, I'm not telling you to make yourself poor or go into debt or something so that you can help them. But rather, in verse 12, he clarifies that he's simply asking for what they are able, right? To give as they are able. Or in the words of uh, chapter 9, verse 8, whatever amount makes them give, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, but cheerfully. But at the same time, in verse 13, Paul turns up the heat a little to emphasize the importance of giving by saying that it is a matter of fairness. And in verse 14, he explains what fairness looks like is that their current abundance should supply their need so that the abundance of the ones they're helping should supply their need. Okay. So let me explain this, because he's talking about two things at the same time here. Firstly, as uh, you can see later in chapter 9, verse 13 to 14, that the Corinthian church will benefit from this generosity because the Jerusalem church will glorify God and pray for them because of the grace of God at work in them, which is shown through his generosity. And definitely, the value of prayers of other believers is an underrated thing especially around reform circles, because you believe 
and we focus so much on the sovereignty of God that we think that God will do whatever He wants, whether or not we pray. And this is certainly how, not how Jesus thought about prayer. He told us to pray without ceasing. And James 5.16 tells us that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So we can always use more of that. But secondly, and what I really want to focus on, that Paul is saying that should their economic circumstances be reversed, right, of when they're the ones who are actually in need, they can trust in their Christian brothers and sisters to take care of them. So they never actually need to worry about ha ever having enough. And in verse 15, Paul interestingly quotes a section of the Old Testament to make his point. And he is referring to a story that a lot of us might be familiar with, of when Israel was in the desert and there was no food. And God sends to them bread from heaven, right, manna, every morning, well, six out of seven days, to feed them, which the Israelites would have to go out and gather for their household. Now, here's a detail that's often missed in this story, right? Everybody had to go out and gather, so no one had the option to just be lazy and mooch off other people. However, not all were able to gather equally. Some gathered more, some gathered less. So God told them to only take a certain amount for each person in their family, like an omer, he says. And what happened was that everything at the end of the day was gathered and collected. Then it was measured and distributed according to this amount. And it turns out, at the end of the day, everybody had enough. Those who gathered more, had nothing left over, and those who gathered less had no lack, resulting in this fairness Paul was talking about where everybody is taken care of. So here is the prof profound point that I think Paul is making here. God is still providing for His people today, similar to what He did in the desert with the manna. But instead of sending actual bread from heaven, God does this now by giving abundance to some of His children in order that they can supply to the needs of those who lack. This is the economics of the kingdom of God that we as Christians are supposed to live by. And the only way we are able to live like this is if, like the Israelites in the desert, we have this blessed assurance that God will truly provide enough for us in our time of need. Then Paul is saying that one way we can have this blessed assurance is actually by generously giving to those who are in need when we're not in need ourselves. Because our hearts are so forgetful, isn't it? When we have success and abundance, we are quick to pat ourselves on the back and congratulate ourselves for being such a capable and intelligent person. Because we were the ones who gathered the proverbial bread. Therefore, we feel entitled to the fruits of our labor. Even at times feeling offended if someone else gets to enjoy what we work so hard for. So Paul's reminding us, though although it so happens that we are able to gather more today, we must ultimately remember that it is God who sends the bread from heaven every day. And some of the bread He sends is for you and I and us to enjoy, but at the same time, He is sending it to us 
to give it to someone else. Such that at the end of the day, everyone will be blessed. Hence, as the old adage says, we are blessed always to be a blessing. And this is upside down to, to the world's view of fairness, isn't it? Because to us, to the world, what's fair might look like either God giving everyone the same ability to gather the amount of bread or letting everyone keep the bread that they're able to gather. But the ethic of God's household, of the Christian family, is entirely different. It's not communism or capitalism. Because what it seeks to reflect is this abundance mindset, the reality that we are at all times are being provided by a generous and loving Father. You see, it's the difference between looking at life like a party being thrown by a generous host as opposed to being in an all-you-can-eat buffet. I don't know about you guys, but if I go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, I want to get my money's worth. In fact, I'm a bankrupt the restaurant through eating if possible. And I'll be strategic about that thing, right? Like not eating carbs, only getting the most expensive and tastiest meat so that I can be as full as possible because I know I paid a lot to get this privilege. But if we're at a party and there's this generous host hosting it, and we know that there is enough, usually we would just take what we need to enjoy ourselves and focus on the people around us. We want to keep the party going and enjoy others, enjoy the party too. We don't want to see anyone being sad or all alone in this party. While rejoicing in the fact that there is this generous host who's thrown this party and is providing for us abundantly. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the biblical worldview is living is claiming that we are not living in a world that is cruel, unpredictable, and scarce. Rather, God's world is stable and is filled with abundance and opportunity because we are not providing for ourselves, but trusting that His goodness and love will provide for us. So the essence of the abundance mentality is living with that as our reality. And an important way we cultivate and experience the abundance mentality is through acts of generosity, no matter how little we think it is. And not just with our money, but also with our time, with our attention, with our love. Spreading the abundance that God gave to us to those who are missing out on it. This, friends, is how we can defeat the scarcity mindset that the world lives by. And this is how we can bridge the gap that often exists between what we believe and what we actually feel by what we have. But if there is those among us today who still have a hard time believing this reality, if you're still living under the assumption that there is not enough and you don't trust God take care of you, I would ask you to consider that if the Bible is true, the God who created this world is a God who is so generous that He would send His own Son to pay for the sins that we are helplessly enslaved by 
with his life. And you, if you trust him as Lord, you can trust that he who did not withhold his own son will not hold on us. You believe that? Would you trust in him? Pray that you do. Let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord, the King of the universe. You provide good for those who are unworthy and every blessing for it. Lord, we acknowledge that all that we have come from you. And we are but stewards of your gifts to us. Thank you, Lord, for showing us the generosity through your Son. Let that reality never grow boring, never grow dull in our hearts. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we can always look to it and be reminded that we indeed have been blessed abundantly by you so that we have the capacity and willingness and joy that overflows so that we can bless others, bless those who are in need and be vehicles of your blessing to the world. We pray that you renew us, Lord, and we pray for those who have yet to trust you that you would reveal your beauty to them and your generosity to them and that you would shower them with this grace that they may turn to you and trust you to provide for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.